Greetings. You've returned to the Black and Grim Podcast, our wonderful new horror fiction podcast. Come in, come in. Now that you've a taste for darkness, welcome. My name is Mr. Black, your host and maligned narrator. If you've seen our recent Facebook posts, you know Grimm is around somewhere, drudging up trouble. Well, Season 1 is officially underway. Last time, we joined young Danny Preston, as he shared with us the day his life changed forever. We unearthed long-buried secrets, and listen as he lost those he treasured most. But as they say, the show must go on. Now, it's time to see where the river leads our hero. Will he overcome his sorrow? Have the police caught that despicable Todd Wilkinson? Find out in episode two of Danny's River. My life crumbled around me as I sat on the bedroom floor, staring at my mother's broken body. When you're young, when an adult's words leave longer impressions than they do later on in life, you're told real men don't cry. It's weakness to show emotion. It's feminine to shed your tears. I'll bet whoever came up with that stupid bullshit never had his family murdered by the same man. The same man, keep in mind, who killed them years apart. Sorrow isn't masculine. It isn't feminine. It's human. My brother, my mother, and even my dad, the same person murdered all three. So yeah, I sat on that damn floor and cried like I hadn't done in years. I cried for Walt, who I teased so often but loved like only an older brother can. I cried for my mom, who had kept secrets to keep me, to keep us safe. I cried for my dad. I wish he was still here to hug me and protect me from the bad man. And I cried for the boy who lost everything he really cared about in a blink of an eye. Yeah, I cried for myself. Grief wields a peculiar power over time. Sometimes minutes seem like an eternity, and hours speed by in seconds. We're lost to those around us, lost in our own torment. Sometimes, if we're lucky, we have someone who can share in our burden, who can lift its mantle from our shoulders and carry it for a while. As I looked into my mother's unseeing eyes, through my own tear-blurred vision, I met with the unwelcome revelation I had no one. Sure, there's Scott and Trent. There's the friends I had back at school. There's probably others. However, 
that moment, I wanted my mom. And that, if nothing else, made the grief hurt even more. Daniel? Daniel, do you hear me? Miranda, the officer who had guided me into this nightmare, crouched a few inches from my shoulder. She hovered, fingers clenching and unclenching, as if she wanted to reach out to offer comfort. Instinctively, I cringed away. No comfort. Nothing could offer succor to... What was I anymore? A son? Brother? No, I was an orphan. Fresh tears brimmed as I realized this. They tumbled hellward as she ignored my silent request for restraint. Slowly, as she gripped my elbow to assist with standing, she drew me to my feet. I don't think we should speak further in here, Daniel, she said, her voice a soft velvet. Danny, I mumbled. I'm sorry? It's Danny. Mom only calls... only called me Daniel when I was in trouble. Finally on my feet, I used my fingertips to force my grief inside. I needed to find the strength to... to do what? Get through the next few minutes? Figure out what was going on? Shaking my head, I started towards the bedroom door, away from my mom's dead body, and towards a life I didn't prepare for. I'm sorry, Danny. My name sounded peculiar coming from her mouth, as if she didn't know how to address someone without formality. Another time I might have poked deeper, tried to find out the reasons, but for now, I let the observation drift to my mind's cluttered rear. Let's go downstairs. The coroner needs to finish processing the body. We stepped into the hallway, where several generic-looking men and women holding clipboards a stretcher, and other tools of the trade, lingered. They wouldn't meet my eyes as I followed Miranda down. Sure, they glanced my way. Every face depicted all the expected emotions. I wanted to scream at them. I wanted to demand they keep their pity to themselves. Fuck off, even. But they were just doing their jobs. And I guess it never gets easy watching someone's life shatter to jagged pieces in front of you. So I kept silent and permitted them to go, without being accosted about their work. We have checked the house. Todd isn't here. May we sit in the living room? If you're willing, if you're okay with it, I need to ask you some questions. He got away? Please, please tell me you guys got him. You got him, right? No, she said quietly. Too quietly, I almost missed it. What? By this time, we had made it downstairs and rounded the corner, leading to the spacious living room. Laundry piled high on the tan couch. This was a common occurrence in the Preston household. We'd clean all our dirty clothes in one marathon burst, toss the clean loaves into the couch, and when everything had gone through the wash, we'd start folding. The stack seemed smaller than usual. Books cluttered the two oak bookcases stretching along the wall. Several were uncharacteristically laying on the hardwood floor at their feet. When I noted these, I couldn't help think Mom would kill us if Walt or I didn't pick them up. The hand-built coffee table squatted between the couch and the room's garishly huge television, capped at one end by Dad's old leather recliner. I saw, as I lowered myself down onto the cushion's firm edge, a cup had been overturned, its contents seeping out over the smooth, glossy surface. There were two glass panes embedded in the tabletop. 
When I saw a zigzagging crack in one corner, I remembered why Walt had been in trouble. Please, she started. Please understand the department is throwing significant resources to apprehend your family's murderer. But, at this time, we did not have him in custody. Why not? I started to rise, to match my escalating temper. I wanted... No, I demanded justice. Instead of defending herself, Miranda redirected the conversation to her questions. What do you know about Todd Wilkinson? I thought about what my mother had told me earlier and wondered if I should keep part of it to myself. A logical part of me knew every kernel, every little tiny fragment, might help them catch the bastard. It might even shed some light into his reasons for murdering my family. It made sense to tell her. But another part, perhaps the calculating part buried within myself, wanted to keep the secret, wanted them to work harder for failing the people I loved. My eyes wandered around the room, until they settled on a picture of Walt, Mom, and me, smiling as we stood in line to see Mumford and Sons together. I chose to tell the officer what I knew. Most of what I know, I only do because Mom told me. Truthfully, I don't really remember him. But Mom, she told me something a few hours ago. A few things, actually. Miranda nodded through all this, as if she already had this information but was humoring me so I'd get to the juicy bits. I ground my teeth a moment as I stared into my open palms. Go on, Daniel. Danny. Take your time. There's no rush, she said, soothingly. Her words indicated one thing, but the impatient light behind her eyes, well, they hinted something else. I struggled to focus, to answer when I doubted my own words. I could hear footsteps outside, the porch landing squeaked as several people moved up and down the old boards. Their conversations barely rose above a steady drone, yet every so often I could hear Walt's name or my own. Turning my head, my home, which should have been filled with my family's natural rhythms, felt heavy. Noises similar to those outside echoed down the gloomy hallways, originating from my bedroom in the back of the house. It's funny how strangers can shape a place's feeling almost as profoundly as the absence of those who had called it home. He got out of prison earlier this week. Mom said he had called her a few times, though she didn't know how he had gotten our number. We changed it a few years back. Telemarketers, you know? My mouth started to dry out, but I forced myself to go on. That's all I could do anyway. Go on. Mom told me, Todd wanted to be my dad so much. When I, before he killed my dad, when he was around, he took a liking to me. I don't guess it was the pedophile kind of way, but mom said she had thought it seemed too intense. Too much, like he might steal me away. Go on. What else did your mother say? Your condition, really from a young age, to open up to the cops. They're the good guys. The heroes who will protect you when the bad guys come knocking. I lifted my head, partly to meet Miranda's stern gaze, partly to will strength into my being, and comprehended a more cynical truth. No matter how many tools they've got at their disposal, regardless of how much they seemingly care, they're just people doing a job. When they're done notating the worst moments of our lives, they get to go home. And because I realized this, I didn't want to share all my mom had told me. 
Instead of answering, I said, I need some water. Is the kitchen safe? She looked towards the doorway we'd entered through, where a wiry man with glasses too large for his narrow face and wispy blonde hair listened to our conversation. I followed her gaze, but my own eyes dropped to his hands, where he clutched a battered notepad and silver pen. He wore a guilty expression as if I'd caught him in some indiscretion. He pretended not to catch my suspicious look. Instead, he nodded yes to Miranda, who in turn motioned for me to go ahead. Neither officer joined me as I exited the room's other doorway, crossed through the dining room, and entered the kitchen. Even so, I felt eyes watching me, marking my movement to see what might happen. Though I was innocent, their presence caused me to feel guilty, like I had something to hide. Carefully, quietly, I poured myself a glass of milk and fought down a fresh wave of tears when I realized I grabbed Walt's gaudy superhero mug. Your mother probably told you Todd Wilkinson got out of prison recently. Good behavior. I hadn't realized she followed me. Instead of turning, my eyes bore into the cream-colored cabinets as I attempted to conceal my growing agitation. Grief and rage, perhaps misdirected by trauma, welled up inside me, and I wanted to scream at her. I wanted to demand they all get the fuck out of our house to go find the motherfucker who had gotten parole only to use it for murder. I don't think I could do this. My words carried across the room, wading through the heavy air until they reached her. Miranda nodded once but didn't retreat. Rather than move away, she hovered on the linoleum floor. The island where Walt and I had made gingerbread houses, cookies, messes the island filling the space between us. I knew then that she wasn't as cold as I wanted to rationalize. I wanted, no, I needed someone to blame. The police were only doing their job. I understand. Do you have somewhere to go for the night? We can do this another time, when the grief has settled a little. Did I have anywhere to go? I honestly didn't know. My friends were probably too drunk to safely come for me, and... If I knew Scott and Trent, their sales would be the last thing on their minds at this time of night. Without turning, I shook my head no. What about your friends, Scott, Trent? They are probably still at the bar. I left it unsaid that they were also more than likely drunk. Regardless, she seemed to catch my drift. Any other family? Again, no. Walt and my mom were the only blood relations I still had. Dad had been an orphan, and Mom's folks had died before I was born. I had an aunt, but we had not heard from her for about three years. No address, no phone number to reach out to. There wasn't anyone in my corner anymore. Maybe I should have seen things differently. When I didn't have anything, she continued. Alright, wait here while I speak to someone. You cannot stay here, Danny. We're still processing the scene and Todd Wilkinson is still out there. Where will I go? I don't, I don't have anywhere. This time, reality struck me full force. I leaned against the counter and buried my face in my arms. My sobs filled the quiet house as Miranda finally retreated into the hallway. I never ended up telling the cops all of what mom told me. Miranda eventually found out, but by that time, she wasn't on the force any longer. 
Mama told me three things. The first, Todd wrote us letters during his incarceration. Some to her, some to me. She had read them out of some macabre fascination more than anything else. When I asked why she didn't burn them or take them to the authorities, my mother had gone real quiet and will always chill me when she said next. Someone with authority had to let those letters get out, Danny. An evil man wanted to keep us bound to him, but a prison usually censors mail like that. So someone had to be helping him, Danny. Someone was helping him. The second thing she told me was Todd meant to come for me. He had said this in his letters many times over the years, and she wanted me to get away, to go off to college, and never come back. She would have traded me hating her for the rest of my life, for knowing God forever exists beyond his reach. The third thing, the thing we should have known when we were kids, the things you would expect to see in papers but somehow didn't show up. Todd had eaten part of Dad's arm and face, but because no one could believe he was capable of such atrocities, the authorities ruled the wounds were the results of a wild animal that had gotten into our home after Todd left the scene. Funny, right? A rational part of me wanted to deny it. Even now, I want to deny her words. But Todd fucking Wilkinson murdered my family and killed any doubt I might have clutched to. Danny, a voice whispered in my ear. Startled, I lifted my head, slamming it against the bottom of the cabinet. Stars flashed across my eyes and my vision blurred into red fuzz as the pain blossomed across my skull. I bit down on my tongue to prevent the scream from escaping into open air. This only added to the pain, compounded by a small rivulet of blood filling my mouth. Angrily, I moved to the sink, where I hacked up the unwelcome crimson. Only after pressing a clean paper napkin to my bleeding mouth did I remember someone had spoken to me. No one. The kitchen remained empty except for me. I swore I heard someone speak my name. Someone over my shoulder, whispering so anyone outside the room wouldn't hear. Yet as I scanned the room for someone hiding in the shadows, or just to address my imagination, I started to question my sanity. I threw the napkin down into the sink and started to stalk towards the living room when my skin prickled slightly as if someone's eyes were tracing up and down my back. Violent shivers racked my frame. They rattled my body so violently my back spasmed, nearly forcing me to the cool floor. What the hell was going on? Fear quickly supplanted agony as my mind properly registered no one else shared the room with me. What I did next might go down as one of the stupidest things I've done in my life. Basically, I ran away. Now I'm sure you're skeptical. It's unlikely someone could escape a property littered with police, especially considering they covered every major entrance into the house and were hell-bent on detecting people. Fun fact, People don't pay attention to their surroundings as well as they should at the best of times. Factor in two dead bodies and an escaped murderer. There was a lot to focus on. So, while the officers guarding the back door were lost in conversation, I made up some excuse about needing fresh air and slipped away through the bushes separating my yard from the neighbors. It was really quite easy and extremely stupid. My first thought 
when I crossed Mr. Caldwell's finely manicured yard was that I could circle around to my car. I had left it down the street from my house, so I'd have to cut back through one of the properties further down. Distress and grief might have clouded my judgment, but I understood getting to my car wouldn't be easy, nor would it afford me opportunity to get away. In hindsight, I realized I acted suspicious. Despite bearing no guilt, I fled the crime scene. Admittedly, I didn't handle things well. But come on, I had just seen my mom and brother's dead bodies. What do you expect? Late springtime in the south is a beast all its own. Unless the weather has a panic attack and decides to go all carry on us, nighttime is, if not cool, mostly comfortable. Moreover, it's never really dark when you're in suburbia. Street lights illuminated the yard, and when a cruiser wheeled down the quiet street, I ducked behind a large minivan. It passed by without seeing me, and, within moments, turned right at the end of the street. My house sits towards the neighborhood's outer ring, close to where the river cuts through the county. I had ventured to its banks many times over the years. It's where I'd go when I needed to blow off some steam after a particularly appalling day when I didn't really want human interaction. Sure, there were places more accessible to the public, but my spot was tucked behind a quiet copse where I could watch the waters rush out of town. As I left my temporary hiding place, I decided I'd go there. Daniel! A stern, feminine voice said from behind me. Now, I like to think I'm not easily startled, but as I stepped forward, I nearly tripped onto my face. Panting heavily, I glanced over my shoulder, perhaps a tad sheepishly, to see Miranda watching me. Her arms folded, mother hen-like, across her slender chest, but a distrustful scowl crinkled her oval face. Might I ask what you're doing? I dusted my knees and straightened. Turning, I tugged at my shirt, as if I could pull it down to hide my shame. I felt like she had caught me with my hand in the cookie jar, or a toilet paper trailing from my heels. I fumbled for an answer, one that makes sense to her and not make me look even more sketchy than I already did, somewhere in the shadows beyond us, just footsteps outside the glimmering streetlights. I swear someone watched us. I kept hearing that voice, murmuring my name, begging me to listen. I was certain it was no more than my imagination. Grief does funny things to a mind. Still, as I tried to placate this police officer, my eyes kept wandering from her. So much so, she even turned to see what I was looking at. When she didn't see anything, actually, when the shadow person turned out to be nothing more than a sapling, Miranda's expression softened. I needed to get out of there. I... They're dead, and I don't know what to do. I couldn't stay there a moment longer. I started sobbing again. Not for the first time. Definitely not the last. And my legs buckled, sending me to the hard earth with a painful plop. I didn't care. Hell, I barely registered the physical pain. I was already hurting much deeper than scraped knees. You shouldn't have done that. But I get it, she said. Miranda crossed a short space and crouched down next to me. Although I felt her hesitation, a moment later, a comforting hand settled on my slumped back, steadying the trembling torso with more strength than I had expected from her. 
I offered no response, no excuse. Instead, I emptied my heart of its deepest tears. Fast forward a few days. Two, three, I don't remember, but I think it closed in on a week. The police had processed their crime scene, but I hadn't returned home yet. That first night, after I answered a few more questions at the station, and the next day, when my friends verified I'd been with them at the bar, I found myself planning a funeral at Scott's mom's place. She'd insisted, almost forcibly, when, sitting in their living room, telling about the night's events, I revealed I didn't really have anywhere to go. I was family, she said, and shouldn't be alone. She helped me call the funeral home to make arrangements. My friends helped with an obituary. I don't honestly remember much that happened during those hellish days. Lots of tears. And more anger. More anger because by the time I'd entered the funeral parlor where Mom and Walt lay, snuggled in coffins they had spent decades decomposing in, Wilkinson remained at large. Somehow, even with the police force determined to capture him, the murderer eluded them. Somehow he had vanished, slipped away into the dark like a goddamn rat. I would never feel safe. My family would never have justice as long as he walked free. Moreover, I couldn't do anything about it. Time keeps going, and in time, I found myself standing before a large crowd in a sanctuary I'd never stepped foot in before. I stared into faces I knew. I gazed into those I didn't. Everyone shared my sorrow, if to varying and lesser degrees. Nadia Preston had been loved. Walter Preston had been liked. More than I would miss them. I stood, clutching the wooden podium with one hand to prevent it from shaking too badly. In the other, I held the notebook paper where I had written some words. As the last surviving Preston, I owed them a worthy eulogy. I owed them. Yeah, I owed them. I always thought we had it pretty good, I read. I paused to clear my throat. Warm moisture tinged my eyes. I quickly released my hold and swatted them aside. A lump burrowed upwards from the pit in my stomach, but I managed to keep it at bay. I had to get through this. I had to. See, our dad died years back. You guys knew mom. You knew how she wouldn't let anything stop her. If we needed something, and I mean needed, not just wanted, she'd scour heaven and earth until she got it for us. She taught us to be brave, to stand up against bullies, to have faith in human goodness. She was a hero. Murmurs of agreement rippled through the room. I smiled, happy at this. Now Walt, he was a kid who wanted to change the world. I don't know who knows this, but my brother once wanted to work at SeaWorld. He told me once, you have to actively change things when you think they're bad. You can't just accept something just because it's the way it's always been. Not when you think it's wrong. I don't think I will ever be as brave as Walt was. I laid my pages down, unable to read from them any longer. I lifted my head to peer out over the room. We shouldn't be here saying goodbye to my family. We should be sharing laughter. We should be watching my brother grow into a great man. We should be listening to my mom do whatever she did to make people better. But that's not going to happen. 
Todd Wilkinson murdered them. He murdered them, and I wasn't there to protect them. Tell me how I get over this. Where was God when we needed him? I looked down at my own hands, unable to meet anyone's eyes any longer. I heard a few uncomfortable coughs, and numerous people shifted in their seats. Nobody answered, though. Someone once told me, life is like a river. Mine's been polluted, and there isn't any hope I'll ever get it clean again. Silently, I left the podium, and without stopping, fled the gloomy building. Grief flanked the edge of lunacy, saturated every pore until I'd become completely overwhelmed with emotion. I didn't stop moving after I exited the building. I didn't stop when I reached the sidewalk. No. Fueled with manic need, I kept walking. Overhead, the sky shifted to a murky ash, and bulbous storm clouds fanned across the distant horizon. Did heaven share my sorrow? I stopped momentarily to sniff the air. Soon there'd be rain. I prayed a wild, merciless squall would berate this fucking town, and if I was lucky, shake Todd from the brambles. Amazingly, I didn't cross any intersection as cars passed. Well, I don't think I did anyway. This is good, because my eyes weren't focused on the world I barged through. I didn't notice how the trees swayed towards me, their branches reaching down to caress or grasp me. I didn't hear the birds serenade the day with such sorrowful song, nor the forlorn cries of some wounded or lonesome hound. I mean, obviously part of me registered these things, as I'm sharing them now, but at the time, I tracked through my memories with the obliviousness of the emotionally shell-shocked. So, someone might have almost rammed me with their automobiles. Others may have screamed at me with their raucous horns. It meant no never mind to me. It was only when I reached the river, with the sky even blacker above me, did I realize I'd been walking a long time. Instinctively, my feet had led me to Folly Park, a small nature reserve where the old-timers feed the ducks and watch the boats drift past. There were a dozen benches spread along the pathway adjacent to the water and various picnic areas. Unusually, all were empty, so I made my way towards the water to a bench position right after the river curved inland just a bit. For some reason, as I smelled the rich air and listened to the rushing water, a spark of happiness ignited within me. The first honest smile in days flitted onto my haggard face as I sat down. Though I suspect if someone had seen it, they wouldn't have correlated the expression with joy. Maybe another 15 minutes passed while I perched on that bench and listened to nature's beautiful sounds. I must have drifted off because I went from dry to completely saturated without realizing it. Sticky globs tumbled from the sky as the storm finally reached town. Glorious lightning struck in the distance, thrashing the darkening horizon with white-green flashes. Thunderous booms hammered against the ground with increased frequency. I didn't move for a few seconds as consciousness slammed into me. When it dawned, I scrambled to my feet, nearly stumbling forward into the choppy water as I did so. Between the resounding thunder, I thought I heard someone yelling for help. It sounded wet, almost garbled like rainwater flooding windpipes. My clothing clung to my body, and a chill was already starting to set into my bones, 
but I strained to hear, to make out the voice. I'd been hearing someone whisper my name recently, without anyone actually being there, so I really wasn't expecting much. However, things proved different this time around. Help me! A voice cried clearly, and from the direction of the water, albeit just around the bend, not in my line of sight. Someone help me! A woman screamed, her words broken as she inhaled water. What the hell? I roared, my heart racing as pain pelted the rising goose flesh. I drew closer to the water and strained to see into the river. Wind sped up, causing the water to knife upwards in unforgiving spouts. She screamed again, and this time I saw a bare arm thrusting from the waves and a face, white with terror, plunging in and out. Oh my god! I'm coming! She was too far from the shoreline for me to reach, even if I leaned out across the water, stretching my arms as far as they'd go. A quick scan of my surroundings did not reveal any satisfactory aids. So, against my better judgment, I pulled back, and, drawing on every modicum of my athleticism, I dove out into the river. The robust current immediately pulled me under. It took all my strength, as well as considerable willpower I was surprised I still had to swim against the current. I didn't want it to carry me past her. Hang on! I tried to scream. The river water filled my mouth, gagging me. Still, the terrified woman seemed to have heard me. When my head resurfaced, after the river tried to violently duck me, her face swiveled my direction and she cried out once more. I can't tell you how I managed to reach her without drowning. Surely, I'd swallowed enough water to do so. Yet, after what felt like an eternity, far from where I'd first jumped in, I locked my hand around her flailing wrist. Hang on! I yelled again. This time, with my mouth close to her ear, the young woman nodded comprehension. Somehow, we swam towards the shore without losing grip on each other. The river raged around us as we did so, and, several times, it tried to tug her from my grasp. If the river didn't lessen its hold, if we didn't reach land fast enough, we'd either drown or end up in the Cape Fear. I wasn't particularly fond of either option. Finally, however, we were close enough to land to try and grab extended roots or overhanging trees. The storm had quickly elevated the water levels transforming what was typically a relatively safe experience into nightmarish proportions. We had tried several times, without success, to catch hold on something. Perhaps our combined weight was too much. Maybe the universe just hated me. Either way, roots yanked free from the earth as the river throttled me onward. Minutes later, as my strength dwindled and the stranger clutched my body, I stretched my arm out to catch a thick, gnarled root jutting out into the water. The wind gusted maniacally, sending me a fingertip too far beyond reach. I refused to give up. I fucking refused to endure everything I had endured, only to drown trying to save someone from drowning herself. So drawing on the last fragmented kernels of my strength, I jumped more than swam upstream. I screamed triumphantly as my fingers curled around the sturdy root. I wept when it didn't break away. Here, I tried to say. We can use this to get to shore. I don't know if she heard me. I don't know if I even spoke aloud. 
Regardless, she allowed me to place her shivering hands against the root and followed me as I maneuvered the embankment. Mud plastered our weary bodies as we lay, gasping, on a small, blessedly solid rock riverbank. I curled on my side, unable to do more than breathe, and my companion rested on her back. Her face hid behind shuddering hands as her chest rose with jagged breaths. We were exhausted, but we had survived. More, the rain seemed to have slackened to a faint, almost indifferent drizzle. If I had the energy, I might have laughed. I rolled over onto my back and covered my own face with clammy hands. Thank you, she said, finally breaking the silence between us. My head wobbled towards her. I didn't recognize her, but, of course, that didn't mean much. Still, caked beneath the mud and grime, I glimpsed what might have been an attractive girl about my age. Light brown skin covered an athletic frame of average height. Her lips were full, her nose kind of cute, all beneath a streaked muddy layer. Two things shone out from the deluge. One, the perfect white smile she gave me when our eyes met, and two, thin jewels, the blue of peaceful water, stared over her rounded nose. You okay? I finally asked, when I realized I had been staring at her an uncomfortably long time. I felt my cheeks redden beneath the mud. I heard my heart thunder in my ears as it quaked against my chest. She looked down at her ruined outfit and dirty frame as she pulled herself up to a sitting position. I think so. Yeah, I'm okay now. Her voice flowed with a melodic, almost playfully gentle quality. Now that our lives weren't in imminent danger, I realized how soothing, how disarming it sounded. Kara, can I ask you a question? Can I ask you how you ended up in the river? I propped up on my elbows as we watched each other, the only thing I could manage under the circumstances. Now that my adrenaline was fading, sorrow readied itself to reclaim position within me. I had been working on a painting. When I looked around, as if expecting to find her supplies, she laughed. It had a lovely, bell-like quality. My paints and brushes are probably where I left them. A gust of wind caught my canvas. I thought I could get it back before it blew out into the river, but... You were unable. Blushing, she said. I wasn't. So yeah, I'm lucky you were... Say, why do you look like you were at a funeral? I was. Oh, my... I'm sorry. Stupid. I'm so stupid. It's fine. I woodenly reassured her. A heavy lump swelled in my stomach, but I staggered to my feet. Kara followed suit. Unable to meet her eyes, unable to keep the tears abated any longer, I added, My brother and mom, they were killed last week. She gingerly touched my arm. When she didn't let go, I lifted my head to catch tears watering her deep blue eyes. Offering a comforting, albeit apologetic smile, she squeezed my arm. My place is close. Well, relatively close anyway. I think we're a half mile from where I fell in, maybe a little more. She sheepishly towed the dirt, as if she were some shy creature asking her crush out. I might have some dry clothes, holdovers from ex-boyfriends, if you're okay with that. You don't have to, I started. I realized she had still been clutching my arm when she squeezed again. It wasn't hard nor painful by any means, but the girl had a strong grip. I want to. It's the least I can do for the guy who saved my life. 
Besides, it's cold, and we could both use the company, I think. There are times you can argue with women, and then there are times like this one. Parts of me wanted solitude. Sorrow assailed my interior world with a madman's abandon, and I couldn't handle pretending for someone, anyone else. Not today. But another part, mostly buried by the previous week's atrocities, cajoled me to take the offer. Go with her. Hell, this might be the first step in rebuilding my life. Or, at the very least, it might keep the grief pinned back for a few hours. As I stood on the soggy grass, darting back and forth between my thoughts and this curious newcomer, I inevitably settled on the second option. Sure, I think I like that. Kara beamed up at me. Good answer. Besides, I'll make some hot tea to warm us up. Tea makes everything better, don't you think? I laughed. <laughs> if you say so, I'm partial to sugar diabetes myself. Just add some lemon and I'm golden. My joke met with a hearty chortle, and finally, surprisingly to my dismay, she released my arm. Twenty minutes later, we had collected her art materials and reached her spectacular two-story cobblestone cottage. Dark windows beamed out from tan and gray stone, providing the illusion the house smiled at you. The roof slanted different directions, like a cap nodding towards anyone who might pass. Its hunter green shingling magnified the quaint facing. A lush cornucopia of plant life decorated the small yard, adding to the idyllic scenery. As we walked along a sloping pathway, adorned on either side by flowers, ranging colors from purple to crimson to everything in between, there were also artistically arranged toadstools and lush trees. Now, I'm not a plant expert by any means, but damn, I think her home could have rivaled a botanical garden. It's beautiful, I murmured more to myself than Kara. Aw, thanks. This property has belonged to my family for generations. Her eyes followed where mine drifted. I quickly looked at her and noted the affection written on her face. It reminded me of mom, of the care she took to keep our home in tip-top shape. My heart twanged painfully, but I shoved it down before the avalanche gained momentum inside me. And do you live with your family? As if on cue, a tall, balding man and petite, striking woman, probably Kara's parents, threw open the front door and charged towards us. Worry was etched into their features as they guided her from my side. Quietly, I lingered to one side as she explained what happened. They cast curious expressions my way before embracing the girl. I was happy for them. It's good when loving families can return to one another, but as I watched them wrap their arms around each other, Heartbreak's familiar pangs steadily unlocked their prison gates within me. I turned away, unable to watch any longer, and choked down my tears. Thank you, the man said, watching me over his daughter's grimy hair. They didn't care how Kara dirtied their clothes. They didn't care that I was equally dirty. No, as the man smiled at me, his wife, her mother, reached out for me to enter their embrace. And I... Needing a mother's arms around me, yielded. Thank you, he said again as their arms closed around me. Well, let's get you kids inside. Storms died down a bit, but there's word it's supposed to pick back up, Kara's father said shortly. You folks really don't have to, I said. Now that I had been infringing on more than Kara's time, I felt like I needed to go. I had a change of clothes back at Scott's. Besides, 
I'm sure people had been calling my phone, my phone which remained with my change of clothes, back at the funeral home. Oh, nonsense. Jerry, you go and get him one of your old outfits. Mom, I had some... Shush, child. Run along, dear. We'll show him to the bathroom so he can get cleaned up. As we all parted, she waved her hands at Jerry, her husband, before turning back to me. I know who you are, dear. Come inside and we'll try to get you cleaned up. I swallowed and, unable to speak, I stared at the woman. You not the oppressions, boy, yeah? She frequented the store, the woman said, whose name I still didn't know. She nodded her head, sadly, and clasped both hands at her plump waist. A good person, but we will all sorely miss. But for now, let us not worry about what's lost. Instead, allow us to repay you for saving our precious Kara. Okay, but... I need to call my friend to see if he can grab my phone and I think my wallet. I kind of, well, I left the funeral before it was done. I don't know why I told them this. They were strangers after all, and if you remember, Todd Wilkinson was a good man. These good people might seem decent, but that didn't make it gospel. Yet there I was, offering vulnerability. Of course, certainly, she turned to Kara and added, Daughter, please show our guest to the bathroom and collect his clothing. There is a telephone outside the bathroom you may use. Thank you, ma'am. Ann. Call me Ann, child. I'm not so old you have to come mamming me. She chuckled throatily and without waiting for us, bustled off into the house. Sorry about that, Kara said, shoving her fists into wet hip pockets. I probably should have told you I live with my parents. It's just rent's so expensive and I've been saving. Hey, you don't owe me any explanation. We do what we need to these days. And besides, in many cultures, multiple generations live under the same roof. No worries. You're a nice guy, she said, swaying side to side with apparent delight. Now, let's get cleaned up. I didn't argue, but I didn't really feel like a nice guy. No. I felt like a guy who had been shit on so much he just needed to get through. Minutes later, I made the call to Scott. Yo, bro, where the hell'd you go? I mean, everybody gets it, but Trent and me tried to call. Don't have my phone. Then, I proceeded to tell him about the last hour. Wow, man. He breathed into the receiver after I'd finished. Crazy shit, man. Don't sweat it, though. The actual funeral's tomorrow, right? Yeah. Cool. Want me to come pick you up? Nah, man. But listen, you still at the funeral home? Nah, left a bit ago. Why you ask? My duffel bag's still there, I think. It has my wallet and phone. Fuck. Don't sweat it, bro. My mom saw it. It said the house, so you good. Okay, cool deal. Listen, I'm about to shower, and I'll catch you later. I hesitated before adding, Scott? Yeah, man? Thanks, bro. I don't know how I'd get through this without you guys. No sweat, amigo. We got your back. Later, man. I'll see you. Later. I placed the cordless down on the bathroom counter and peered into the nearly spotless mirror. A ragged man-child looked woefully at me. Unable to meet even his eyes, I lowered my head and looked at the Spartan counter. I noticed a pair of scissors next to the faucet, and for a moment, I was tempted to slit my wrists. Wouldn't it be easier just to let go and condemn myself to whatever punishment waited after?
No, I couldn't do that to this nice family. I couldn't do that to my dead family either. Shaking my head, I dismissed the suicidal ideation and swerved away from the counter. Quietly, as I listened to my hosts move through their cozy home, I reached down to turn on the shower. I waited until the water grew hot, and when steamy tendrils filled the small room, I stepped into the tub. For a few minutes, I managed to enjoy myself. All the while, dirt and misery wound down my legs and circled the silver drain. This has been a Black and Grim production. The Black and Grim podcast is an original horror fiction production and cannot be reproduced without written permission from the creators. All rights to the story belong to the author and cannot be reproduced without written permission. Besides, I do not think you want to anger Grim. Thank you for joining us for episode 2 of Danny's River. Join us next time as we see how he moves on from the horrible events perpetuated by Todd Wilkinson and learns who Kara truly is. Grim, hey, you can't do that to dead bodies.